The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. All right. Hello and welcome to another podcast from Monroe Live. I'm Chris Fox from Monroe & Associates, your one-stop shop for automotive appliance and defense benchmarking and cost work. Um, Joined with me today is the CEO of May Mobility, Edwin Olson. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hi, Chris. Um, so we have a whole list of questions to fill up our hour here. Um, we're going to start off with basically who are you, and then we'll go into main mobility and the business model, and then into what I'm really here for is the the technical nuts, bolts, transistors, and sensors of everything that is main mobility. Um, awesome. So to start off, um, what's your background? Like, Where are you from? Where did you go to school? That kind of stuff. Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Bloomington, Minnesota. I don't know how far back you want to go, but from the Midwest, <laughs> and uh, then went the engineering route. So I spent about 13 years at MIT doing computer science and electrical engineering. I was there during the DARPA Urban Challenge. So yes, I'm one of those people. Same here. And, <laughs> uh, and then I uh, got my PhD and surprised, I think, a lot of people by going the academic route. So that took me out to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I joined the faculty in the computer science department here. And I did a lot of the usual faculty things. I wrote a lot of papers, worked with a lot of really smart students, uh, got tenure and got bored. (laughs) And back into uh, building autonomous vehicles. And so I worked as a principal investigator on Ford's autonomous vehicle team for quite a few years, and then was recruited by Toyota Research Institute to lead their autonomous team and ultimately helped build a, a great team there. Uh, before I got the itch again and wanted to figure out the commercialization side of autonomous vehicles, which brought me to May. Okay, sounds good. Um, As you mentioned, Toyota, um, did you ever have any work with their division Together in Motion? I'm sorry, which group? Um, Together in Motion, or TIM for short? Uh, Not not a lot. Okay, that was personal curiosity. Okay. so at your time of U of M, did you develop any patents or any intellectual property and whatnot you'd like to share? Yeah, you know, we did a lot of really cool work. Uh, you know, my, my work coming out of my PhD was mostly mapping and SLAM. If you're familiar with uh, simultaneous localization mapping, that's, I was a SLAM guy. And I uh, wrote a lot, of, uh, a lot of, I think, widely cited uh, papers in there in terms of how to build maps bigger and more accurately than, than previous methods. When I got to the university uh, to teach, I kind of ran in a different direction and I wanted to get more into behavior planning. And so started working with teams of robots that would work together collaboratively to solve different kinds of robotics missions. One of the things that we did, which was really cool, was the Magic Robotics Competition. This was a international competition uh, based out of Australia where we would essentially build a team of robots to collaboratively explore an urban environment, indoors and outdoors. So we built 14 robots and they go out like this swarm, just spreading out, uh, finding people, finding, uh, building a map along the way. It was super cool. And that actually uh, generated a lot of research outcomes in terms of uh, better ways of combining data from IMUs 
uh, visual fiducials, uh, April tags, for example, some people may be familiar with. It's like a kind of looks like a QR tag, um, but it's designed for high speed detection and very precise localization, um, as well as more mapping stuff and the very beginnings of multi-policy decision making, which is a technology that would ultimately become really important here at May Mobility. This is essentially a form of online reinforcement learning. Interesting. Um... So how did you really decide to get into May Mobility as opposed to siding with, I don't know, Waymo, Pony AI, or anything like that? Like why go off on your own, I guess, is the question. Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, by the time I was starting May, I had been part of three really great autonomous uh, vehicle teams. So at MIT, at Ford, and at Toyota. And, uh, you know, the way that we build systems, you know, we were seeing a lot of the same problems over and over and over again. So, you know, like, how do you handle edge cases? What do you do when, when a vehicle encounters a situation it's never been in before? Mm -hmm. And the, the prevailing approach seemed to be to throw more engineers at it. And you ended up with these massive engineering teams, thousand plus people, essentially trying to catalog all of the scenarios to, to render all the edge cases into known cases. And this just wasn't working. And, and I think it still arguably doesn't work. Uh, so I think, you know, one, one way of kind of framing it is that I feel like I've had the luxury of failing enough times to get desperate <laughs> to try something different. And uh, so main mobility really was sort of a contrarian's approach to autonomy. You know, what, what is a radically different way to think about driving that might have a chance of, of scaling, you know, so that you can go from city to city and from environment to environment where you fundamentally change the idea of what an edge case is and you try to make these, not edge cases, but just stuff that happens, uh, stuff that the vehicle can reason through. And so that's, it was that desire to just really kind of shake things up and do things differently that led to May. Okay. Um, what cities does May Mobility offer rides in so far? Yeah, we've been in 12 cities since the founding of the company. Some of those uh, have wound down as you know natural you know projects come and go, um, but uh, today we are live in Arlington, Texas, our, Ann Arbor, Michigan, our our base town headquarters. I have town. questions on that later. <laughs> Great, uh, Grand Rapids, Minnesota, which is a tiny Iron Range city, about fourteen thousand people in very northern Minnesota, um, which uh, which we'll talk more about there because that's a really interesting use case. A lot of people get fixated on robo taxis. And that's probably the number one thing we should we should talk about. Like, oh, yeah. Name Mobility is not a robo-taxi company. We do something very different. Um, and uh, I'm missing one, uh, which is not a good thing. Uh, there's a fourth one in there somewhere. It'll come to me. Oh, Sun City, Arizona. Okay. And then previously, we've operated in eight other cities, uh, including cities in Japan as well. That's quite the spread there. <laughs> yeah. Um. So you mentioned edge cases, and there are two cities that came to mind. Um, the one in Minnesota, I can imagine, is an absolute nightmare with the weather fluctuations and ice. Um, there seems to be this weird mentality of, oh, an autonomous vehicle can operate under any conditions. Like, well, you can't really break the laws of physics when driving on ice. So how do you really handle some of the really nasty weather conditions in Minnesota? Yeah, you know, I think there's there's two sides to weather. There's the uh, impact on perception mm -hmm. uh, resulting from just, hey, there's stuff on your windshield, stuff on your cameras. 
And, uh, you know, we've, we've kind of taken, I think, a harder path by choosing to operate in places where we have to deal with snow. It's not always sunny. It's in the rains. Uh, and so we have been kind of forcing ourselves to deal with bad visibility, bad sensing conditions. Now, that's not to say it's an easy problem. That we've now nailed it. But I think we've done a pretty good job at being able to operate. Uh, kind of the, the, the almost quick, easy way of figuring out whether our vehicle can handle weather is that you know, if your windshield wipers are doing this, we're fine. <laughs> we're not. <laughs> and of course, time will, time will improve uh, the, the operating design domain and we'll be able to handle more and more. Uh, you talked about slippery, uh, slippery conditions, mm -hmm. icy. Uh, so one of the main ways that we handle this is by controlling our speeds. So we target environments right now that are, are basically where buses go. So our target market are basically, you know, look at most of, most of the United States. Most of the United States uses buses for public transit. And most of those buses are operating at speeds 30 miles per hour below. And at 30 miles per hour and below, you, you have a lot more physics <laughs> working in your favor you know, a lot lower kinetic energy, your brakes are a lot more effective. Uh, and then if things do get slippery, you can slow down by a little bit and still be in, in a pretty safe regime. Okay. Um, the other one I want to circle back to was Ann Arbor. Um, that's got to be a very stark contrast between Japanese pedestrians versus Ann Arbor pedestrians. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, we've been, been having, a a lot of people through for, for uh, demo rides lately. And, uh, you know, the students are moving in, uh, we're moving into campus and, uh, uh, you know, go blue, but damn the pedestrians do not behave themselves. <laughs> They're just all over. The <laughs> uh, you know, some, a lot of uh, AV companies talk about Market Street in California. Market Street's got nothing on, on uh, Main Street and State Street here Ooh, in Ann Arbor. When, <laughs> Main uh, State, no. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's on-street parking, which is one of the hardest things for AVs because uh, on-street parking blocks your view of what's going, going on. Pedestrians can come out anytime. Those cars can start moving out. And, of course, they're constricting the roadway. And in Ann Arbor, you've got very narrow roads. Of course, with the on-street parking, you've got pedestrians, ill-behaved, you name it. It's just challenge after challenge after challenge. And it's really... Uh, you know, where, where you get not just one crazy thing happening at a time, you'll end up with four or five crazy things happening at the same intersection at the same time. And this is where like a traditional sort of edge case kind of approach just would fall apart. You, you just can't do it. But you're right. The contrast between this where, you know, in the United States, when, when you're at a uh, traffic light, the traffic light turns green, it doesn't quite mean go. It means begin being more aggressive and assertive with respect to all the negotiating for space with pedestrians, right? So, and then it's always like, I'm going to go, you're going to go, and you're kind of jockeying for position. It's a live negotiation. That could not be more different in Japan. In Japan, pedestrians are highly compliant. They basically don't jaywalk. But conversely, when it is, uh, when they do have the right of way, they just go, heads buried in their phones. They don't pay any attention. They completely trust that the cars are going to stop for them. And so one of the, you can imagine if you built an autonomy stack where you have considered thousands of intersection edge cases and how the vehicle should, should behave, and it works great. Let's suppose you've nailed it in Market Street. And now you go to Tokyo. Uh, or, um, or, <laughs> no. it, it's not gonna work at all. Right. <laughs> uh, so, um, and Tokyo's hard, uh, to be fair. To Tokyo is really hard. But we did operate in Takashiba, which is a district in Tokyo. Uh, slightly more structured and benign, 
but still where we have a lot of these complexities. But what we had to change in our system is really cool. We didn't have to change a thousand different rules scattered through our system of how intersections should work and how we should ne negotiate with pedestrians and, and how queuing behavior should work. Uh, our system is based on the simulation capability that we have in our car. And the way that our car makes decisions is by simulating what pedestrians are going to do. So we went in and did brain surgery on our models of pedestrians and made them a lot more compliant, a lot more likely to, to yield when the light is red and a lot more likely to go when the, the light is green. And now the behavior that we want out of our car falls out automatically from that, that change in the underlying model. So this is the, the advantage of when you, you have that simulation capability that's on the car and you use that to, to inform and adapt your decision-making rather than trying to write down everything ahead of time. And probably I, I, I should describe what multi-policy decision-making is. That's so the next question, so go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if you're familiar with the uh, reinforcement learning in general, uh, so you know the, the basic idea in, in reinforcement learning is that sometimes it's easier for some problem domains to write down what good looks like rather than to write down how to solve a problem. So if you're playing a game of chess, for example, it's a, you might write a reward function that says, hey, it's really good to capture a, a queen, uh, you know, really bad to lose your pieces as well. And you can assign points to these things. And then from there, you can apply machine learning methods to compute the best policy. Okay, given that you don't want to lose your queen, how should I move in order to avoid losing my queen and to capture their queen? Now, traditionally, uh, reinforcement learning is, is too hard to apply to autonomous driving because uh, the, the space is hugely dimensional. There are just a huge number of things that can happen at the same time. It's a continuous domain, of, a continuous value domain. So it's not grids of pieces moving discreetly from one cell to another. It's an infinite range of velocities and speeds. And yes, if the pedestrian changes their speed by half a meter per second, it matters. <laughs> so you don't get that discretization effect. So the search space becomes very large and the space of actions that you can execute is very large. And this has, has basically put reinforcement learning, as cool as it, as it is, it's made it impractical for autonomous driving. What we did is we, we found a way to basically get good approximate reinforcement learning solutions in the autonomous driving domain. So the idea is pretty simple. You can imagine that you've got a space of all of the policies that the autonomous car might have. You know, maybe in the lower right corner, you've got aggressive driving, and over here you've got conservative driving. And over here, you've got one that likes to change lanes a lot. So this it's this uh, abstract space in which the behavior of a vehicle might exist. So what you'd ordinarily want to do is do a search over that entire space to find the policy that works best over the entire range of all conditions that a vehicle might, might encounter itself in. That's too hard. But suppose you say, what about the situation I'm in right now? Can I find the policy that works the best in the situation that I'm in at this moment? No, still too hard. <laughs> but now what if you said, all right, what if I give you a couple dozen points in this space, 16 different policies, and now I, I ask you, which of these 16 policies is the best for this particular situation that I'm in? This you can do. Right? This you can build a simulator and try each of those 16 policies in a closed loop simulator live on the vehicle to game them out and let those policies compete for control of the vehicle. 
And then we can actually do some fine tuning on those policies. So basically the key thing is that we don't tell the vehicle what to do. We give the vehicle this diverse sampling of different driving styles and let it do an election to figure out which of those driving styles is best suited to the conditions that the vehicle is currently in. So think about that this is kind of kind of cool because sometimes good driving is careful driving, right? Sometimes good driving is aggressive driving. Sometimes the right thing to do if you're going uh, approaching a traffic light and and the traffic light turns yellow is is to step on the gas and get th get through there because what if there's a car uh, tailgating you right behind? You know, there, you know, applying aggressive braking is not a good decision. So it turns out to be really hard to prescribe in advance what the vehicle should do in every every situation. But you give the vehicle a palette of options and let it try try these out in simulation on the car, then it can make and adapt decisions to the situation it's in. Now, the hard part about this is that now you have to have this simulation capable, capability that lives on the car and it has to be stupid fast. So literally every 200 milliseconds, we're running thousands of these simulations across each of the each, each of the policies in our policy space, uh, marginalizing over all of the uncertainty of, is that pedestrian gonna step off the curb? Is that traffic light gonna turn yellow? Is that car gonna run the red light? We sample over all of these things, these externalities, and build up a risk profile for every one of those 16 policies in our space. And then for the next 200 milliseconds, the winner gets to control the vehicle. <laughs> and then we wash, rinse, repeat, do the same thing again 200 milliseconds later. And so to give you an idea of the, the sort of throughput that we've got here, uh, every second of clock wall clock time, we simulate about two hours of driving. Wow. So it's a really stupid fast simulator, but what it does is it allows our vehicle to, to adapt and, and even say like problem solve in situations uh, that, that our engineers hadn't thought of. That is definitely interesting. I've only heard of one other company who does any sort of predictive modeling like that, but I think you guys have taken it a bit further. It, I, I, it, it is a really strange way to approach the problem. And, you know, in, in a way, I, I take uh, some blame for the way, that, <laughs> you know, for years I taught robotics and how to do robot planning. And I, I taught the conventional, you know, sense plan act mm -hmm. cycle where, you know, you've got this corpus, this decision-making logic. And when the vehicle does something wrong, you go and you do brain surgery on it. And it's just so deeply ingrained that this is how you build a, a system, um, but it doesn't it doesn't scale to these complex real world situations. Uh, so again, you know, I, I I have the advantage of having failed three times before. <laughs> it's all right. It's how you learn. Um, so do you license this technology, or is this strictly just used on the main mobility fleets? Uh, our focus is on building and deploying the technology. So we we build the technology, uh, but we don't license it to to other other folks. Okay, I think there's a business opportunity there, perhaps, but <laughs> we'll see. There could be, um, but you know, I think one of the things that we're excited about is is that by actually bringing our service into the world, we have the greatest confidence. But it's kind of a switch to business. Um, let me let me back up. One sure. of the biggest questions you've got when you're trying to build a business around autonomous vehicles is who's going to make the money? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I worry about for uh, AV companies that focus on a widget or a licensing model is that they're going to get a huge amount of downwards price pressure 
and they they're going to sell a small small little widget that goes into every every Cadillac, uh, and they'll they'll make you know three percent margin on it, which would be fine in the in the uh, in the tier one space. Right. That's not a great business though. And in my my belief is that if we're solving some of the world's hardest problems, maybe we should go and capture a larger portion of the revenue pie. And for us, that means building the technology, yes, uh, but then also bringing it into the world where we can we can go and solve some of the world's hardest transportation problems. So one of the things that we've done that's very different is we're not robo taxis. We have a really different approach to building uh, an autonomous vehicle business, and it has to do with buses. So I mentioned buses once before. Right. Most of the United States uses buses for public transit. Uh, and most of the time, those buses are driving around empty. We play mm -hmm. a little game every time we see a bus, like how many people are on that bus? And rarely is it more than three or four. Mm -hmm. Here's the killer. Those buses cost about $150 an hour to operate. That's, a, that's hugely expensive. It so <laughs> it turns out nobody's happy with this. So riders aren't happy. And you can tell because if they were happy, they would ride the bus. The cities are not happy because they're spending a huge amount of money providing at the end of the day a service that isn't getting people where they want to go. And they just don't have better tools. And it turns out even the transit operators, the people who operate buses, are not happy because providing the labor and dealing with the labor sh shortage, driver shortage, is a huge problem uh, all around the world, even the U.S. Uh, and it, it's a huge, huge hassle. And the margins are very low in that business. But suppose you go and you find one of those bus routes that costs $150 an hour to operate and carries three to four people on average. And you replace that bus with two Sienna, uh, like minivan kinds of vehicles. And now these are on-demand point-to-point vehicles. So they're not on a fixed route. You pull out your phone. It's to the rider. It's like a Lyft or an Uber experience. You blah, 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 blah. The vehicle comes to you, takes you directly to your destination. Now you as the rider, you're super happy, right? You waited. It was more convenient. You didn't have to wait as long. Your trip routed you directly to your destination. Great. The vehicle's more comfortable than a you know plastic bench bus. It's <laughs> happy because now you're actually transporting more people and and the quality of service is going up. And you, we've actually shown in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that we twenty five percent of our riders had never used public transit before. So by increasing the the uh, service level of public transit, you can pull new people in. And that's great for cities because they hate parking spots. And every car that you can avoid bringing, it, bringing into the downtown core is fewer parking spots, a more efficient use of property value, less pollution, less noise. It's just a win all across the board. Uh, and then even the transit operators are happy because then we can come in and provide, turn these low margin businesses into high margin businesses because, of course, the vehicles are autonomous and we, we don't have the, the highest cost component in the whole stack which is the labor of the driver. Fair enough. Um, you mentioned the Sienna. Um, is that the vehicle of choice for main mobility or do you implement this on multiple different um, vehicles? Yeah, so the Sienna is one of a, a product por portfolio that we're building out. Uh, we've also done some early development with uh, the ePallet, which is one of these sort of toaster shaped uh, people movers. It's yep. Toyota's uh, people mover. Uh, that's an all-electric vehicle, which is super cool. Uh, but you know, one of the things that uh, I think about the Sienna is that it is an incredibly practical vehicle for most of our customers. You think about a Sienna, it's got the right capacity for the vast majority of the United States. 
maybe not Manhattan. Manhattan, you yeah. could probably, you know, get uh, have have uh, some benefits from a larger capacity vehicle like the e-pallet, because then you've got more overlapping itineraries and ride ride share makes more sense. But in most of the United States, uh, low capacity vehicles are ideal for actually getting people to and from uh, suburbia to another part of suburbia. So capacity is great. They're not expensive. They're super reliable. They're hybrid, so you get almost all of the advantages, environmental advantages of an electric vehicle. But now with a vehicle that can be turned around in the depot in three minutes, as opposed to a charging cycle, which could take a long time in a pure EV. And it doesn't require massive in investments in infrastructure, like a sub a substation charging center, a substation to support your EV charging. You know, if, you, if we show up in a city with 50 EVs, the village <laughs> Really excited until he realizes that he's got to build a two million dollar substation to to keep up <laughs> more than that. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So you know, today I think that sort of Sienna vehicle is a great workhorse that can solve a huge amount of problems. And as the technology comes along, you know, the the ideal solution will will change and we'll add other offerings. Okay, that's a different rationale I thought you were going with. Um, what stood out in my mind looking through your website is the term accessibility keeps popping up. And that's different from a lot of the other autonomous vehicle programs. So I would assume that means with the ride on demand, that kind of stuff, you're aiming towards like ADA compliant vehicles? Yeah, exactly. And okay. I think there's two ways to look at this. Uh, one is like a, a sort of the, the social reason we do it, and then the business reason we do it. And it turns out both of those point in the same direction. They do, yeah. <laughs> so on the social side, you know, obviously it's good for people who have disabilities to have access to transportation, right? They're, they're people and with families and places to go, mm -hmm. and we can improve, meaningfully improve their quality of life by helping them get from point A to point B. But it's actually not just the, the disabled folks that, that benefit from the availability of accessible vehicles. It's their caregivers who now have an easier time getting them to medical appointments or to, to other events or, you know, like, hey, hey, Julie, you go do your day. I'm going to go to work. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or even to like medical professionals that now uh, will have fewer call-offs. You know, people will show up on time for, for meetings. That's efficiency gains. And I think as a social safety net, it, the kind of society that I want to live in is, is one where we take care of everybody. I think that is, is a really social positive that, that helps uh, create a positive sentiment between people interacting with other people. So I think there are all these social reasons to invest in in wheelchair accessible vehicles. Even though wheelchair accessible vehicles are more expensive and it can impact the total seating capacity of the vehicle. So there's a price to be paid, but I think it, it, there's a huge amount of value. So there, I think it's worthwhile. The business side, well, the reality is that cities won't buy your products if you can't uh, serve disabled people as well. And so there, even if you didn't care about the social stuff, from a business reason, it's still a good reason to invest in that so that you have the ability to go after these contracts. And so both of these signals for us point in the, in the right place. It's part of the, the May ethos that you know, the best way to do good is by doing well. Fair enough. Um, so circling back a little bit, getting, well, I guess getting further into the weeds here, um, just at a high level, what is your sensor suite on a typical vehicle? Yeah, we are, uh, not religious about sensors. Okay. So uh, we are in all of <laughs> the, use um, that term. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, of course some people are, uh, have, have, uh, 
let's say very forward-looking views, you know, it should be all cameras or LIDARs are evil or whatever the case. Exactly where I was going with that. Okay. <laughs> uh, for me, it's a very pragmatic question. I want to be building and deploying vehicles that generate positive margins today. What's the sensor set that allows me to do that? And today, the, the practical way to do that while achieving safety and a sufficiently large ODD is a combination of camera, radar, and LIDAR. Now, that said, we have a pretty interesting sensor stack. It's probably one of the least expensive sensor stacks out there that's you know, not just a pair of cameras. Uh, but uh, our LIDARs are all 905 nanometer amplitude modulated LIDARs. Uh, these, these are like the vanilla of the vanilla, vanilla yeah. uh, LIDARs. <laughs> uh, our radars are off the shelf um, automotive radars. And the cameras, of course, we cameras are great. And I think over time, what we're likely to find is that the capabilities of cameras will improve and improve. And we may be able to drop some of those other, other sensors down, especially the lighters are, are more expensive. But right now, we're focused on building vehicles that can generate positive margins and do it safely. And for that, that means all three. Fair enough. Um, do you use any off vehicle sensors, any like V2X interfaces, anything of that variety? You know, we used to. So in the early days of the company, uh, what, one of the things we've always really been felt strongly about is like, how do, you, how do we stop making excuses and start getting the vehicles out? You know, so within five months of the founding of the company, we had our first uh, public carrying demonstration. So providing rides within five months of the company uh, founding. So very, very fast. And th there's so much to do. Autonomous cars are hard. And, you know, the, we didn't have time to solve every problem. So one of the problems that we punted on were traffic lights. Uh, and one of our engineers said, you know, we, we, could, we could build higher resolution maps and we could put the camera in, in, uh, in the car and figure out how to handle all the variations in sunlight and bad angles where the sun is directly behind the light. We could, we could do all of that, uh, but then we don't get to launch for another year. Or we could bolt a camera on a pole on the other side of the on the intersection <laughs> and just have it there at the traffic light and then it's done. So we did that. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And, and it was actually great because it solved exactly the problem that we got. It got our vehicles out onto the road. It started that virtuous cycle of getting feedback from the customer, figuring out what we're doing well. And as time has gone on, we no longer need infrastructure. So, you know, one one thing that may not be surprising is cities don't have a lot of money. And if you go to a city saying, you know, this is great, we're going to solve all of your transportation problems, but we gotta, you got to spend millions of dollars to upgrade all of your infrastructure first. No, no, it's not going to happen. So you need to be able to operate infrastructure free. It also is, is nice to know that our vehicles are uh, self-sufficient in terms of all of the safety requirements that they have, uh, that, that, you know, a, a down cellular link is not going to impact our safety in any way. So we've been able to migrate away from that. But yes, in the early days, we did use infrastructure. Today, no more. Yeah, I've seen some other fleets. The U.S. seems to be very resistant to V2X, whereas Germany and Japan and China are pretty much like all in on V2X. Yeah, you know, and I, I have, I don't know if this counts as a hot take, but uh, I'm not a big fan of V2X for safety applications. You think about all of the the surface area, you know, for attacking a vehicle, mm -hmm. you know, like a civil attack or just spoofing or just denial of service. Oh yeah. If, if you build a vehicle, and oftentimes what you hear is like V2X is going to make safety so much better, but only if it's authenticated, secure, and reliable. And I don't know how to make it any of those things <laughs> <laughs> when it's just you know 
radio waves that can be jammed or spoofed or, or whatever else. You know, if, if this was a, a closed community of vehicles that were that shared cryptographic keys, like suppose May vehicles only communicated with May infrastructure, mm-hmm. there you could at least say, hey, it's secure. I still can't necessarily solve the denial of service because someone could still just yeah. jam, jam radio, but I could solve that. But if your notion is that you're going to secure every single passenger vehicle in the world. <laughs> yeah, not going to happen. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Now, that, that said, so a V2X for safety, I, I'm, I'm really bearish on. But for optimization, hell yeah, right? There's stuff we can do here. You know, think about how much time you waste coming up to a traffic light and, and the traffic light's red and there's nobody. Yep. So smart intersections, scheduling things, uh, it, you know, even for, for lar- large trucks, you know, giving them some elevated priority through an intersection would save them downshifting and shifting all the way back up and a huge carbon impact every time they have to do that down and back up Absolutely. exercise. So there's a huge amount of advantages that we can get for, for micro-optimizing a route. Um, but I, I think right now, I, I don't know that the, the return there warrants the investment for most cities. That's fair enough. Um, what else can we go over here? Um, have you toyed with any infrared or full spectrum camera suites yet? Absolutely. Yeah, so I think uh, it's a safe bet that if the sensor exists, we probably played with it. <laughs> okay. Uh, but the key thing here for us is comes back to the business case. And this is one where May is pretty different from other AV companies. We're really... Uh, stubborn about keeping the cost, the bill of materials cost down. If the vehicles don't make money, we don't have a business. Yeah, that's fair. And you know, we also are not uh, bankrolled by you know a company that generates <laughs> has a hundred billion dollars in cash, <laughs> you know, under the under the under the mattress. Yeah. So we're really focused on the bill of materials price, and for us, that means keeping the sensor cost down. Uh, there are a lot of sensors that we'd love to have, uh, like the fifteen hundred nanometer. FMCW lidars are super cool. Uh, the the multispectral cameras super cool, uh, but they blow up the unit economics, and then we don't have a business. Our view is is that as the technology comes down in cost, we want to be one of the earliest adopters, uh, and find the right market fit as well. But one of the things that's great about our go to market strategy, back to buses, how many buses go on freeways? Not too Not many. many. Right. So in fact, our go-to-market strategy means that we don't need to operate at very high speeds. We can capture the vast majority of this transit market with vehicles that operate 35 miles an hour and less. And guess what? That you can do with a 905 nanometer amplitude modulated LIDAR, a couple cheap radars, and a couple cheap cameras. Yep. And it's totally good enough. Uh, we get asked a lot, why don't we operate on freeways? It's actually, freeways are easier. Right. From a from a structure and behavior perspective, you don't have pedestrians, you don't have college students Usually. <laughs> as much. Across <laughs> uh, the challenge is sensing. You just I mean, have to be able to see so much farther out. And that meters, drives yeah. up. And so now you need to match the sensor capability for the revenue in each market segment. And so what's really great about the transit space is the revenues are way up here, $150 an hour. And the costs are way down here because we don't need to operate except at about 35 miles an hour. Other industries have uh, differing levels of revenue potential and 
and vehicle requirements. And basically all of them result in vastly lower margins. So RoboTaxi, for example, I'll beat up on RoboTaxi for a little sure, bit. Go for it. It's terrible business. Just from the numbers perspective, mm-hmm. uh, how much revenue do you think you can earn as, as carrying individual based on individual fares? You know, you're competing with Bob and his Hyundai, and you know Bob's not making a lot of money either. But now you're going to go after Bob and his Hyundai with a vehicle that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars and needs to solve the hardest version of the autonomy problem by having massive, expansive connectivity, high speed, so high bill of materials price. This is this is a business that. Now the revenues are low and your bill of materials is high. That's not good. Right. Um, trucking. Uh, trucking is is a, a, another really interesting market segment. This is one where the revenue potential is pretty good. Oh, it's yeah. not quite as, as good as, as uh, transit, the transit sector, but it's pretty good. But here you have a problem that the sensing requirements push you down a very high bill of materials path. That's that's surmountable because the revenues can make that a viable business, but uh, the big problem in the in the trucking space is the lack of vehicles with drive-by-wire systems that are safety certified. Yes, that's true. A lot of them are still the old hydraulic ones too. Yeah. Right. Right. And so you know you build up a, a trucking company, um, and a lot of them full of smart people, uh, great technology, but they're going to be spinning their their wheels until about 2030 before class eight trucks and any reasonable volumes are available with drive-by-wire systems. Oh, like any reasonable volume, yeah, okay. Because I mean, yeah, Daimler's had their two for like 10 years or so, but that's been about it. <laughs> they haven't really progressed too Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you'll have small, small fleets, but uh, you know, if you're burning, say $150 million a quarter, small fleets are not gonna bring you to profitability. No. And if you're, if you're stuck until 2030 because of supply chain, that's a really tough place to be. So again, back to the Sienna. What's great about the Sienna? It's, it's maybe not as sexy as the Origin, Cruise Origin. That's a pretty cool vehicle. But, you know, it's available in quantity. It's FMBSS 100 certified. It's ready to go. And we can have as many of them as we want. And doesn't have the in-floor storage, so you can get away with the ADA compliance a lot easier than you could, say, a, an Odyssey or Pacifica. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, it, you know, it's it's one of these things that... Uh, uh, it, and don't get me wrong. Like, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, cheering against... Is that a thing for other AV companies? Sure. <laughs> the success of other AV companies is good for us. Mm-hmm. It creates interest and excitement. Uh, but I really, really do think that our go-to-market strategy is pretty awesome in terms of the revenue potential, the impact on the cost, the margin potential, the availability of vehicles that we have through our partnership with Toyota. Uh, it feels like all the pieces come together. So it's a great first business to have. And then from there, we can expand into other market segments as the unit economics in those market segments starts to improve. Okay, I'm um, coming back to sensors a bit. This is a, a weird one that's come from a number of calls I've had. Um, have you toyed with binaural audio yet? Uh, so for to be able to do location, um, detect the location. specific use cases for emergency vehicles with their sirens and lights on. Like the typical driver, yeah. you hear the siren, you stop, you look around, you figure out, get out of the way, what kind, whatnot, but. There's been a number of instances where other robo taxis and AV companies just completely ignore that because they don't perceive it. Yeah, this is a super hard problem, uh, and we we do we are looking at various audio sensing methods. I, I don't know if we're currently looking at a binaural or or arrays of microphones. Um, probably we've looked at that, uh, but I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, but one of the things that is is really challenging about emergency vehicles is that sometimes they drive without the sirens on. Mm-hmm. 
which is not supposed to, but that's again where a, a V2X implication would come into play. It was like, okay, my lights are on. Now I've notified all kinds of vehicles, get out of the way kind of thing. So it seems yeah, to be exactly two right. very different methods to take that on. Yeah, so it's it's a super hard problem. I think this is one where where uh, you know our goal is to detect when there's an emergency vehicle in the area, uh, and then be able to have you know humans who understand the context um, a lot better, you know, through a teleassist, be able to help the vehicle decide, hey, is the is that siren you hear that's getting closer and closer on the other side of the divided highway? In other words, don't care about it. <laughs> fine, you're you're good. Uh, or is it one where you should get the hell out of the way? Mm-hmm. Or if you, you know, sometimes you get a, at an intersection and you're already at a stop, you hear the siren, it's a fire truck behind you that's trying to get around. And now all the cars are playing this sort of Jenga. Inverse Jenga, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, trying to get out of the way. Uh, like, I don't think any autonomous vehicle can do that sort of un Jenga at, at an intersection <laughs> to make room for a, a fire truck. Uh, and that that's again where people would, would pop into the loop. And so I think part of the, the, the strategy for us is to figure out the right way to use remote operators to s- support the vehicle. Uh, one thing we do not believe in is teledrive, yeah, okay. where you've got like literally a steering wheel and someone's you know gas brake steer. <laughs> over <laughs> that's that's not a good not a good strategy. Uh, so we have a one of the things that's kind of cool about our system is that our teleassist actually is they're essentially integrating directly with that multi policy decision making system. So basically, in that space of policies, we may have other policies that by default are disabled. You think of it almost like rules of engagement. I'm not allowed to cross the double yellow line. I'm not allowed to run a traffic light unless someone remotely gives me permission to do so. Hmm. Okay. And that's where someone remotely, even over a, a, a link that might have poor bandwidth and poor latency characteristics, can still get the situational awareness enough to say, yeah, this is where you're going to want to do X. And then the control is handed back off to the vehicle and the vehicle always does the driving because the vehicle's the one with the low latency, high bandwidth connection to the sensors, not the person. Right. Fair enough. Um, if you were trying to convince someone who was resistant or hesitant to get into an AV, what would you tell them? Oh, this is a great question. <laughs> uh, so we, we get this all the time. You know, people uh, oftentimes worry that adoption of AVs is going to be slow, and you know the reality is that if you if you pull up to next someone you know in their suburban, you, you roll down your window. Hey, would you get in an AV? They'd be like, No, man, I got my suburban. I'm I'm like yep. you know here, this is great. <laughs> uh, the problem is that you're not solving a problem for them. Now consider someone who's standing out at a bus stop. They've been waiting there for forty minutes. It's in in Grand Rapids, Minnesota or you know, some other very cold place, they're freezing. Um, the bus was supposed to come. They hope the next one comes. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. And you show up with a heated Sienna ready to take them directly to their destination. There's basically no one in the world that's gonna say no to that, that vehicle, to that ride. And so for us, this has been the guiding light for us that we focus on solving real transportation problems where someone has pain acceptance barrier has never been an issue. If you really are solving their problem, making their life better, they'll get in the car. Fair enough. Um, another more legal, political question. Some of the other AV companies have been hit with the term um, using, quote, human guinea pigs, as in like releasing their vehicles into the wild. Um, what's your take on that? 
You have to be careful. Yeah. So yeah. I came from a university background where we have the whole IRB oh, process. Whatever yes. <laughs> <laughs> you do an experiment that involves people, you know, you have to make sure that uh, the you know all the participants benefit and there's informed consent. One of the big problems that, that you're getting at is that when you take an autonomous vehicle out onto public roads, you, you didn't get informed consent from all the other drivers, right? You you are sort of imposing your uh, I dare say experiment. Um, hopefully, it's not an experiment. Hopefully, it's <laughs> past the experimental stage. You're imposing your vehicle on the world, mm-hmm. and with that comes a a huge ethical requirement to make sure that you're doing this in a safe way, uh, in a way that that is likely to benefit the people around you. And so, obviously, safety is there. Solving, you know, uh, improving quality of life for for uh, you know people who have mobility issues or older people. You know, it's it's a complicated equation of hey, here's the risk that I I I present to to the world, and here are the benefits that I present to the world. And then everyone needs to be able to do that assessment. But fundamentally, I don't know that that's all that different from the decision that uh, humans make. So if you are, you know, an 84-year-old, vision like like my mom, um, vision's not so good, um, reaction time's not so good, and she makes the same sort of decision. Like, oh, what's the risk reward? You know, is it really a good choice for me to go and and pick up my son at the airport? So in this case, we take that same sort of sentiment of of risk reward, and of course the the whole ASIL kind of you know safety category uh, classification process, and we've really made it much more rigorous, uh, so that we we feel really good about the safety case that we bring before we we turn on operation. Uh, let's see what a list of questions we have here. Uh, Were there any cities or launch sites that were really, really easy to implement versus the ones that would be, you would not recommend doing again? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll approach it from the regulatory side and then the technical side. Fair. So one of the, the nice things about our go-to-market strategy is that the regulators are actually our customers or at least the office next door. So when you're selling to the cities, We've bypassed a lot of the problems that uh, like a robotaxi model would have. You know, when you show up in San Francisco with your fleet of autonomous vehicles and the city has an immune reaction, like, ah, (laughs) 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 what's happening? Um, And, you know, our approach is very different, that it's actually the customer that's paying us, the city that's paying us to bring our vehicles to their city. So it creates an alignment. Uh, from day one that makes the the logistics and the licensing and all the regulatory stuff much, much more straightforward. On the technical side, uh, yeah, wow. So there, there are some cities, um, Tokyo's hard. <laughs> uh, just the traffic. I didn't expect that, but okay. <laughs> uh, it, it, it is very dense. Um, uh, New England drivers are, are hard. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> And uh, you know, Ann Arbor's hard, but you know, especially when when school is is in session and the pedestrians are all over the place. Uh, but you know, I don't think it's too hard. These all feel like they are within um, w- within within our hit zone, strike zone. You know, that we're gonna maybe we have not launched a operation without safety drivers yet. Stay tuned; it's it's okay. not far ahead. But uh, 
we feel like these are all doable. We'll take our time and we'll move from the easier environments to the more complex environments. But I think these are all doable. In part, actually, bring back to tech, uh, because of the way that we approach the problem, that we don't feel that there is this uh, infinite pile of edge cases for us to chip away at, where we just have to claw away at all of these edge cases until the tail has you know sufficiently small area. Uh, of course, we have we've had bugs. We will continue to have bugs in our Everyone system. Everyone will. <laughs> yes, uh, but but fundamentally, our system has this improvisational ability to solve and to work around. Uh, defects uh, or challenges in a way that a more traditional system doesn't have. Let me give you an example. Suppose you are an engineer here at May and you someone sends you a, a case where the vehicle did something we didn't like. And so you're like, ah, oh, okay. You know, what would solve this is what if the vehicle had a policy that uh, was kind of aggressive and was willing to pull out into an intersection, you know, it does behavior X, Y, and Z. And so, so now in the space of policies, your proposal is to add a policy over here. And in your head, you're thinking, okay, so now in situation X, policy Y is likely to be the best one and it's likely to get elected. You know, great. I run a couple simulations, it all checks out. You ship the code. Now the vehicles all have policy Y on board. But again, the vehicle does not ever ask, oh, I'm in situation X, I should do policy Y. Y is now just a one more competitor in this tournament that the vehicle is running. So if the vehicle gets into situation X and, and policy Y does in fact perform the best, great, problem solved. Suppose the engineer uh, commits a bug, right? And so policy Y actually does something unsafe. Maybe initially like in version 2.0, right? Policy Y version 2.0, he breaks it. Uh, what happens? Well, the simulation runs the vehicle does something dumb in the simulation and the vehicle says, well, policy Y sucks all of a sudden. I'm not <laughs> going to elect, I'm going to elect something else instead. So there's, there's this uh, almost built in regression proofness in multi-policy decision-making because we're validating the performance of every policy before we use it in the situation that we're currently in. There's a flip side to this. Now, again, you're an engineer, you design in situation X, you design policy Y to address it. What if the vehicle's in situation Z? It's not what you were thinking of, but what if policy Y turns out to be, be a great solution to situation Z? Multi-policy doesn't care what situation you were thinking of when you wrote the policy. If policy Y works great in situation Z, we'll elect policy Y and off we go. And from this, we get a massive improvement in generalization performance. Right? We're not just solving problems one at a time. When we add new policies to the system, we're expanding the space of the vehicle's problem-solving capability. And so you have this, this additive uh, emergent intelligence kind of capability from the system, which is, I think, really different from what other, other AVs have. Yeah, exactly. there's only one I'm aware of that does anything close to that, but again, you've taken it significantly further but to your point earlier most just say if a then b if b then c kind of thing just go down the list yeah exactly right and it doesn't scale oh, one other fun thing about this is that uh you know obviously this writing a simulator like this uh, that runs this fast is a is part of our our secret sauce yes absolutely um, you might think our power consumptions must must be ridiculous like we must have like an array of gpus or something in the back but actually our power consumption is one of the lowest power consuming 
uh, AV stacks in the space, as far as the data that we, we were aware of. So we, we draw about 700 watts all in, computers, uh, GPUs, sensors, which is about a third of yeah, what that is really the industry. And so like, <laughs> first of all, that's great uh, because every time, every watt you spend is silicon you have to buy. So it's building materials. Mm -hmm. It's silicon you have to power. So it's power supplies. It's heat that's generated that you have to remove. So it's cooling. It's more packaging. And if you're an EV, it's more battery capacity for the vehicle to make up for the range that you're burning on your compute. Well, it's, it's always so, regardless. I mean, it's, it's the alternator or the or the uh, DC-DC converter either way. But it, Sure. Uh, although on an ICE, you know, it's 750 watts per horsepower. Yeah. So uh, yeah, you got to shrug that off. <laughs> Not, not a big deal, uh, but in a, a B, all the the first four factors still remain a really big oh, yeah, vehicle in ice, like the cooling and packaging and and all of that. Um, so this this is a massive advantage for us, and it may be kind of uh, counterintuitive. Like, how does your power come in lower when you're doing all this extra stuff that other companies aren't doing? And it actually has to do with uh, the fact that we're able to handle ambiguity better. So as I mentioned, when we run these simulations. We, we run these simulations over and over again. So these are Monte Carlo uh, samples. We're drawing from the posterior distribution of outcomes conditioned on each of the policies. And in when we're uh, estimating this, this posterior distribution, we're modeling what happens if the pedestrian steps off? What if the pedestrian doesn't step off the curb? What if the traffic light turns yellow? So we're marginalizing over all of these, these different possible outcomes. Well, if you think about it, that means that our vehicle has a really intrinsic ability to deal with uncertainty and ambiguity, which means that we actually don't need to throw the biggest possible deep networks on our perception stack. If your system does not have the ability to deal with ambiguity, you got to max out. Every percentage point matters hugely out of your perception system, because if you misidentify that that pedestrian over there is a palm tree, and now you do your sort of rule-based planning, you're going to end up with a bad day. Oh, yeah. Whereas we can handle, our system can handle the ambiguity of maybe that's a palm tree, maybe that's a pedestrian. That's not actually a kind of error that we would make, but you can get the idea. And so the fact that our system at its low level is able to deal with amb ambiguity means that we use good perceptual, model, perceptual models, not uh, ones that fill up A100 graphics cards by the, by the half dozen. <laughs> and so it's weird because we spend more power on the planning but we spend vastly more on the perception because the perception requirements are short of perfection, but they just have to be good enough to inform these Monte Carlo simulations. So I would love to go into a whole bunch of different scenarios on uh, how multi-policy decision-making <laughs> would run, but I think we're about out of time though. I, I tend to talk a lot. <laughs> that's good, that's good. <laughs> we had an hour and yeah, we're about there. Um, you have any closing comments, anything you'd like to share before we wrap up? Yeah, you know, I think the, the number one thing that we encounter in the space is, is that so many people assume that the only go-to-market strategy for AVs is, is robo-taxis. Mm -hmm. And what one of the, the key, key things that I, I hope I got across is that there's this, this great go-to-market strategy in transit space. The revenues are high, the bill of materials is low, and the potential for positive social impact is fantastic. We're, we're not just talking about you know, throwing more cars into city and adding to congestion. We're talking about being able to remove parking structures, remove uh, uh, 
allow restaurants to spill back out into into the roadway like they mm-hmm. did during COVID. It's one of the nice perks of it. And people would constantly <laughs> ask, like, why can't things always be like this? Because that was awesome. Restaurant cafes spilling out into the, the streets. If you can get a handle on on the number of personally owned cars that are dragged into city cores every day, then you can start to think about how you can make a city more beautiful, more accessible, more more social. Social. And one of the things that I, I think is that today I get in my car and I essentially teleport in my little metal bu- bubble from my house to my work. And as a result, I don't interact with my neighbors very much. Mm-hmm. And what, what sort of social impact does that have? When you don't know your neighbors as people, as human beings, but as the people you drive past on your way to work, <laughs> it, 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 becomes, it becomes really easy to, to imagine them as caricatures. Yeah. You know, people with, oh, those political beliefs, you know, oh, those people. <laughs> if we, I really do believe that if we have, uh, if, we, if we can communicate more with our, our, our neighbors, it could improve the stability of our society as a whole. Like and it. maybe that's too much to pin all of our hopes on better public transit. But if you think about how it could really improve walking and cycling and make the roads safer so that, yes, you can send your kids out to go play without you know, bringing along you know, an army of, of guardians and, and supervisors <laughs> and babysitters, really could have a, an enormous impact on who we are as, as, a, as a community. And our, part of our vision is you know, transforming cities. And when we talk about transforming cities, we mean both that sort of physical impact of fewer parking structures, more trees, more green space, more retail, fewer, par- you know, all of that. Oh, yeah. But also the follow on effects of a place that's better to live. Okay. I like it. I appreciate it a lot. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you so much, Chris. This was a lot of fun. All right. Same to you.